2: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash switch. Forty five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
3: Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada Land, and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. It disappears at the end of the month and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. You haven't heard me say a word about the biggest story in Canadian media right now. And I have a reason for that. But the more I think about it, the more I have to admit that my reason is just an excuse. The real reason why I've left it to others to have this discussion is because I'm implicated by this story. I'm involved with it, a little bit involved, but involved enough to make it uncomfortable to talk about. The thing is, if I have learned nothing else in putting today's show together with my colleagues, it's that this is an uncomfortable conversation for everyone. Uncomfortable at best. For some, it is downright painful. The story I'm talking about here is the story of Michelle Latimer. You may have heard too much about Latimer. You may have never heard of her at all. She exists in a uniquely Canadian category of famous by decree. She is far from a household name. She's not really well-known to audiences. But last year, the Canadian cultural establishment the CBC, the NFB, TIFF, many more, all of them came to a consensus about two things. One, it is time for Indigenous people to tell Indigenous stories with the full support of the film and TV industry. And two, that Michelle Latimer was uniquely qualified to tell the biggest ones. Latimer is an actor, director, writer, and producer from Thunder Bay. It's hard to think of anybody whose star was raised higher last year in Canadian media. She was the showrunner for Trickster, which, at a budget estimated at over $18 million per season, might have been the biggest Indigenous TV series ever. Her documentary, Inconvenient Indian, was the buzziest premiere at TIFF. It swept up a slew of awards, and it was set to screen at Sundance, Both projects enjoyed tremendous reviews, and in between, Michelle Latimer was profiled and featured across the Canadian media, in newspapers, fashion magazines, everywhere. Michelle Latimer is striking, and her style, feather earrings, uh, draping herself in a wolf skin, impossibly cool-looking forearm tattoo, she has this modern graphical take on traditional native design. Like I say, her personal brand was Ascendant, and she was poised to launch big in 2021. But then, In the last days of 2020, her scandal broke. A months-long CBC investigation revealed that Latimer had been misrepresenting her background. She'd phrased it differently throughout the years, but the specific wording that triggered the expose was in an NFB press release in which Michelle Latimer claimed to be of, quote, Algonquin, Métis, and French heritage from Kitigan zibi anishinaabeg a community on unceded Algonquin territory, about 120 kilometers north of Ottawa. They had never heard of her. Who are you? Asked Kitigan-Zibi elder Claudette Commanda of Latimer. And prove to me who you are. Why are you claiming you are from Kitigan-Zibi? What is your purpose and intent? What do you have to gain from this? Commanda called Latimer's claim an insult. The CBC dug into census records that say Latimer's grandfather was not indigenous, as she had claimed, but French-Canadian. They consulted with a genealogist and researcher who found that all of her family members going back to the 17th century were easily identified as French-Canadians, Irish, or Scottish. She was found to have two indigenous ancestors in the 17th century. In other words, wrote Variety magazine, Michelle Latimer is white. Michelle Latimer does not agree. While she apologized to Zibi for naming their community, quote, publicly, before doing all of the necessary work to understand the connection, Latimer says she is now doing that work. To, quote, "...formally verify this linkage, she has sent the CBC a libel notice and has hired the crisis communications firm Navigator to control the damage. The damage is considerable." Inconvenient Indian has been pulled from Sundance and from distribution. Latimer had to give back her Vanguard Award from the Dock Institute... And she stepped away from the second season of Trickster, but the CBC canceled the show anyway, saying, a little bit cryptically, that there was no consensus among the key stakeholders that the show should move forward. What I can tell you about that is that the stakeholder, who the CBC is gesturing towards there, is Eden Robinson, the indigenous author of the Trickster novels. Robinson said, quote, I don't know how to deal with the anger, disappointment, and stress, end quote, of being misled by Latimer. The deception had consequences for Robinson within her community, and she's promised to donate all future author royalties from the trickster books to the Hysla language authority. But while Eden Robinson tried to make amends to her own people, other indigenous people who were losing out on opportunities because of tricksters cancellation, targeted Robinson in an online pressure campaign to get her to change her mind. This scandal has had impacts elsewhere. The indigenous TV and film community is small, and Latimer was involved in so many projects that are now canceled or in limbo. Beyond those directly affected, there are thousands more who have struggled to claim or reclaim their own indigenous identities. And for them, Latimer's story has put their very personal, sometimes private struggles under a glaring national microscope. It is so easy to do damage when talking about who is, and who is not, Indigenous. It's a conversation that opens wounds. There are collateral casualties. And that's the reason why I've kept my mouth shut, even though this is the biggest media story in Canada. It's for Indigenous people to have this conversation. Except, except it wasn't Indigenous people who made Joseph Boyden the biggest Indigenous novelist in Canada. And it was not indigenous people who decreed that Michelle Latimer was to be the foremost indigenous filmmaker in Canada. Our cultural establishment did that, and our cultural establishment is not indigenous. Out of all the talented indigenous people looking for opportunities, our gatekeepers somehow found two indigenous people who are not considered indigenous by indigenous people. How we managed that? is not an indigenous issue or a mess that indigenous people should be left to clean up. This is a question for Canada's cultural gatekeepers to grapple with. And the real reason I think that I've sat this one out so far is because I'm one of them. In a tiny little way that is uncomfortable for me to accept, I have had some power. In this case, I've been working with Ryan McMahon and a producer named Miranda De Dupontier to turn our podcast, Thunder Bay, into a dramatic TV series. And so I was one of the people who had a say about who the showrunner should be. And last summer, I jumped at the chance to have that person be Michelle Latimer. It was not because I am such a huge admirer of her work. I hear her work is great, but to be totally honest, I haven't seen it. But I knew that we wanted an indigenous showrunner and a showrunner who we could pitch to Netflix and HBO. And I knew that there are maybe three names that fit that criteria. So Ryan and Miranda and I had a meeting with Michelle, and she seemed great, and she was into the project, and we were days away from signed contracts when her scandal broke. So I think it's a bit too convenient for me or for anybody else who got on the Michelle Latimer bandwagon to label this an indigenous issue and and just keep shtum. So that is why I am finally talking about this story today. Many of the people that I wanted to talk with about it, Michelle Latimer, uh, the CBC reporters who investigated and broke the story, Jesse Wente, who championed Latimer and who is a producer of Inconvenient Indian, they and a bunch of other people all said no. Other people, indigenous people involved with Michelle Latimer's projects said yes, and you'll hear them today. I'm going to talk to my colleague, Ryan McMahon, and to documentary filmmaker Alethea Arnakuk Baril and Inuk seal hunter Stephen Lonsdale, both of whom were to be featured in the movie Inconvenient Indian. I gotta tell you, the decision to even talk with me about this stuff in public was not an easy decision for any of the people you're gonna hear from today. And you're gonna hear why that is. Wait for it. <laughs> This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Nola Wong, Maya Hoke, Leslie Rand, Wesley Babcock, Javed Nisar, Abby Todd, Rhonda Johnson... And Jeff?
0: I'm Jeff from St. Mary's, Ontario. I'm a developer, and I support Canada Land because I think more than ever, it's important to have a critical lens on the large media that define the conversation being had in our country and distribute the news stories around it. I also appreciate how Canada Land has used its platform to highlight smaller voices and diverse voices and to bring attention to important stories that I otherwise wouldn't hear about.
1: Ryan McMahon. Why did you decide to talk to me? Well, f- first of all, I want to say people should stop bothering Eden Robinson. This was this was this was actually the thing that pushed me over the edge is there's a very large call on social media to like email Eden, hit her up on social media, like get to Eden Robinson and make her change her mind. And I'm actually less I- interested in in Michelle's specific story and I think that the cost that she is paid we can't even really measure right now there are so many projects that were in development you know most filmmakers and and producer types have many irons in the fire and as you you said in the in your setup you know we were scheduled and and set to to begin work with with michelle on the dramatic adaptation of thunder bay and and she was successful and on her way up and those many irons in the fire are are now I, i would imagine you know, mostly squarely taken out of the fire. And so that the impact of what this is and the ripple effects, I don't know we're going to really understand for for, for for a very long time.
3: The cancellation of of Trickster, the, the shelving of Inconvenient Indian and all the other projects affected by this, you talk about the price that she's paid. Anybody who was involved in those projects, uh,
1: they paid a price as well. The real tension is if you are, speaking out too loudly publicly, how are these producers and others that kind of circle around indigenous creatives right now uh, to assist in making these projects? How will they respond, right? Um, there are a few names in the spaces that that clang the bell very loudly. And, uh, you know, do these become problem voices for the industry? Do these become sort of red herrings for folks that that just kind of want an easy path to, you know, to, to, to an indigenous project? And I think what this has shown um, is that this is going to be messy and it's going to be ugly. And um, I think that's the tension is we're we're building new relationships and, and, we're, and we're, we're fumbling and stumbling our way through it.
3: Well, there's just this weird moment um, of, of silence for so many different reasons. And what creators told me is, look, if I talk to you, Jesse, um, on Canada land, the next time I don't get a green light or a project is is overlooked, I won't know why, you know, I won't know. Uh, if that's the reason why. And so there's just this kind of vacuum and into that vacuum, there are voices that'll pipe up and, you know, national post editorial by John Kay or, or an editorial in the journal de Quebec saying, well, this Michelle Latimer thing, this is what you get. This is what you get when you bring identity politics To filmmaking, and you make your decisions based on who's indigenous and who isn't. And, uh, you know, I guess people are gonna have to do DNA tests before they get to make a movie from now on. Those are the sort of voices, and that's where the conversation goes when everybody else is
1: unwilling to talk about this. That, that's not what's going on here, though, right? Like, that's thats not actually what's happening. And, and I think that when we look at false claims across academia, when we look at, at these particular false claims, and we look at, like, other spaces where this has happened, it always is tied to the money and opportunity, right? The one joke I wrote, talk about an inconvenient Indian. Like uh, it's it's because there there is a doorway there for indigenous uh, creatives to to walk through. And there, there are funds, you know, that that are set aside for indigenous voices. And that was the correction that was made in 2015 uh, through the work of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Perhaps five years from now, 10 years from now, we don't have these problems because, you know, those that that sort of have been hiding in the shadows with with uh, false claims or precarious claims, they will get weeded out through time and it'll be harder to do this Um, but this is always tied to resource and opportunity right like what's clear here is that the industry makes darlings I don't know why they make these darlings but the path to to being that darling is pretty clear that it has to do with privilege and and um, and it has to do with access right if your ties to indigeneity are precarious at best then you lack the lived experience and you lack the you you lack the weight that most indigenous people with lived experiences of the the traumas and things that have happened here. You la- you lack that in your life, and so you're not prohibited by that. So you you just kind of walk around loosely, like no one, no, no Pretendian is trying to bust their way onto the reserve to like get in a, a lineup for a house, which is like eleven years long. No one with Pretendian. Uh, tendencies are, are like dying to not have clean drinking water, right? These people are busting their way through the door to be first in line. It
3: just um, it seems to illustrate how the stakes are so wildly different. These are very different cultures. These are very different loads that we're carrying, depending
1: on how we, uh, what, what, who we are when we come in the door. Look, it's this is about relationships right and i think the core of our existence as indigenous people is about relationships it's about it's about how we forge relationships in community with ourselves with our families with other families in the community and ultimately with our our nation as sort of as as extended family and that's the question why why is you know Claudic coming out so hard the elder from Kitigon ZB that said tell me who you are Is because that's what she's asking is like, put yourself in relationship to me. It's not so much like, how much native are you? It's not what is your blood quantum or, or let me take a swab from the inside of your cheek. It's like, position yourself here.
0: I read
3: that as like, I never heard of you before and and we don't know you. So but you're dropping our name as that you're connected to us
1: And I feel like this is going to be the real tension going forward is like some people don't have those those relationships. Some people because of colonization, because of the 60s scoop like you get really complicated situations right where where we have to be empathetic and compassionate to those that don't that don't have those ties and we have to make room to allow people to figure out, you know where they come from and who their family is. That's all fair. So, so, so I guess why I'm sharing this and why I wanted to talk is that it is complicated and it is messy. And the thing that I I really wanted to come on today and point to is that, you know, the Indigenous Screen Office and APTN are, are going into what they're calling a, a an Indigenous identity consultation process to try to undertake a, a community engagement process regarding indigenous identity that, that will help inform future policy uh, decisions. And I just wanted to share that I think that's a positive development. I think that it's tricky. We're getting into really tricky territory, right? But I think that if we could find a way, and here's, I'm just spitballing and imagining, I have no information on whether this would be the thing, but if we were able to come up with a a small jury or committee that rotates in time people in and out to help vet and approve some of these types of applications based on our relationships to each other and what we know of each other's stories that that might be something that could be viable what that looks like, who that is, I have no idea. But it is not blood quantum. It is not percentage. It is not blue eyes, uh, blonde hair. It is not dark brown skin. It is not tattoos. It is not front lines at the, at the I don't know more protest. It's a nuanced, complex, and very difficult conversation.
3: That is something I heard again and again that to bring up or to take a position or to even talk about who is and who isn't is a topic that threatens to hurt so many people who have had their own identity be a matter of flux or have had it challenged. To talk about that, it's all linked to a history of the residential schools and destruction of the family units and all kinds of policies that I think detached people from their identity or from their communities. But
1: that's not what happened with Michelle Latimer. That's not what happened with Joseph Boyden. Right. When we talked... About you doing this, I thought, I told you, you're fucking crazy. Like this is how, how, and your response made me comfortable in the conversation, which is the industry has decided who it lets in. Right. And and that's really interesting to me, because at some point we as indigenous people, because we don't hold the keys to the fort, we have to stop talking about this. And we got to listen to white people talk about it, like how and why, how were these decisions made? And I guarantee you, people in the industry are not wanting to have that conversation. People in the industry probably aren't even aware of their own biases and like and, and, and how and why doors were held open widely for certain people, including myself white supremacy is real. White privilege is real. I can I can assure you it's real. So that's interesting to me. And and I guess we're waiting for the industry to respond. And I think we'll wait for the rest of our lives because I doubt it will. It's just very convenient. There's
3: nothing more convenient for, for, for me and for a lot of people, I think, than to st- sit this one out and say, well, let's let Indigenous people sort this through because what are we actually inviting Indigenous people to sort out here? Like, do you want to have a public airing on, like, settler media airwaves of the issue of identity? Or here's an opportunity to torture your own career. Uh, or here's an opportunity to talk about how you got hoodwinked. It's not a great opportunity that's being offered here. The, the space that's being made for indigenous people to have this conversation while the rest of us gawk on, this this is what we're talking about instead of what the intent was. The intent was that we're going to have Indigenous stories told by Indigenous people, and we were going to hear those stories, and that's what we were going to be an audience for. And instead, there's a scandal, and that's the story. I, I, I can understand why people don't want to be a part of that story.
1: The, the other thing that I think is interesting, this, this has happened in Canlit, like with Gwen Benaway and like a few other, a few other names, is the fear that if we have this conversation publicly... And if we have what is certainly a a messy conversation in front of people, that it's going to put the industry on ice. And I think, you know, we've we reached this moment where like seems like everyone's busy, everyone's making something. It's amazing. And so I think one of the you know, one of the real fears is that because we're in a difficult moment, the fear on the industry side from the indigenous creative perspective is that it's going to put the industry on ice and people are going to say, you know what, I, not right now. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not putting this forward. I'm not green lighting this. It's how do we know until we sort this out? It's too tricky. It's too hard. That's a real fear. And, you know, I, I, I never agree with these dickheads, but this is part of what I've heard sort of on the other side of this conversation is that this overcorrection, this overfunding of indigenous voices, um, has created a problem where we're needing to vet people and we're needing to look at resumes and make sure people are who they say they are. And um, I personally hold the opinion that we need more indigenous stories and we're nowhere near where we need to be yet. But but that criticism is fair because that has happened. Like that has happened. That, 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 that publishers, producers, um, networks, broadcasters don't have indigenous people in the room to make good decisions for them. And so that's something that this industry needs to figure out, is who's in your room? Who's developing these projects? And with who? That
3: would be less of a concern if the decision makers and the executives were themselves indigenous, or if there was indigenous ownership.
1: You're exactly right.
3: This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at CAMH.ca CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. at BetterHelp.com CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. <laughs> Alethea Arnakuk-Baril is a producer and director whose films include the documentary The Angry Inuk. She joins me from her home in Iqaluit. Hi, Alethea.
4: Hi.
3: What are the reasons to not have this conversation?
4: <laughs> uh, there are a number. I didn't think I was going to talk to you. Um, to be honest. But Michelle's recent decision to send out libel notices to a bunch of journalists, native journalists, brought this all back up into the news anyway. So I figured rather than let that be the only story hanging in the air, you know, I've already pissed off whoever I was going to piss off by commenting on this back in December. So I decided that this is an opportunity to take the conversation past Michelle and to talk more about responsibility and storytelling. And it's also a chance to say some reassuring things, hopefully reassuring out of love to all those who have been hurt by this conversation, because there are a lot of reasons to not talk about this. For me personally, first and foremost is I'm Inuk. I'm Indigenous, but I'm Inuk. I'm not Algonquin or Métis or the nations that Michelle has claimed. And so my my initial thoughts were to stay out of the conversation because it's not my place to decide for those nations whether she belongs or not and then there's you know talking about identity and who belongs and who's seen as native and who isn't is an incredibly painful conversation I think for a lot of indigenous people even People like me who are lucky to have grown up in my community and speak my Indigenous language as my mother tongue, as my first language. But even for people like me, it's painful to talk about identity because part of the Indigenous experience is to have that disconnect and that, you know, family connections are broken by colonialism all over this uh, country, whether it was through the education systems or Sixty Scoop or you name it, it is an intensely Indigenous experience to be disconnected or to feel disconnected from your heritage. And so when it starts to feel like the world is questioning who is Native enough, we've, we've all kind of felt that, that doubt about ourselves of whether or not we're Native enough. And so it's a painful conversation. And it's especially painful for people who have had more severe disconnects from their family for reasons like the 60s scoop. I've, there, there are people in my family who are scooped that we only got to know as adults. And for people who have worked so hard to try to find their family and to feel like they have a right to claim that heritage, it's extremely painful or an extremely painful uh, thing to have this brought up um, and to see someone put so little effort into finding their own family story and to just so confidently take up so much space when, you know, some, some people have been doubted by their own communities for much, much less. <laughs> so there's been a lot of strain, not just on, on filmmakers, but um, I think a lot of Indigenous people Who heard about this story and so the decision of whether or not to help bring it back up in the news is a tough one because I think at some point it was like we just have to minimize the damage and again I initially didn't want to talk to the media but then I decided that because I'm a subject in her documentary Inconvenient Indian and because I work in the film industry and that my part in that film was about Indigenous representation in the media. I just felt like my silence was somehow making me complicit or that my silence would make it seem like I'm supportive of Michelle's positions. So I just felt the need to say something and and to apologize to the people in my community who I helped her gain access to because I vouched for her. You know, she wanted to speak to people here and I told them, yep, she's native, she's a native filmmaker, she's done lots of great work. Um, People know her, she's legit. So I played a role in her gaining access to people in my community who I deeply, deeply respect. And I have to wear that and I wanted to apologize to everyone for that.
3: It seems that the ability for those who are not Indigenous, to comprehend the damage of this is limited. If I hear you right, making this a national scandal weighed in on by so many people who are outside of that those circles, it re-triggers that trauma for people who, this, this, this external judgment of who is and who isn't, there's no way of, of the, this not
4: touching them. Yeah. I mean, even just <laughs> seeing Facebook and Twitter comments from non-Indigenous people telling Those of us who are, you know, being critical of Michelle's behavior and decisions, telling us that we're wrong and and that she's Native, as if non-Indigenous people have a right to say that. I mean, on one hand, it's laughable, but it's also hurtful. I mean, so often we are told by settlers how to be, how to act, what the truth is, you know, that we don't have the right to say what's what. In all kinds of situations, whether it's our education system or resource development, you name it. And when that happens about our very identity of whether or not we are who we are, it's just laughable is not the right word. It burns. <laughs> but yeah, it, it triggers all kinds of pain for so many people, and you know, it. it I think it's especially painful for people who. Who are indigenous and aren't disconnected from their community for reasons of colonial violence. And, you know, the, they're the ones who need the most care and love and assistance in, in finding their community, and they have the least access to those of us who can help them find that. And I just I just wanted to express love to those people and tell them that please don't let the behavior one person discourage you from finding your own community or doing that work, and sometimes those connections are really broken, and people can't find birth families, or they've already passed on, or for whatever reasons connections are lost, and it it doesn't necessarily mean that you're not indigenous, you know. But if if you're doing that work and trying. I don't want people to be discouraged from continuing that journey um, because of the pain brought up by by this new story. Something that I really wanted to say is, you know, it's not it's not a binary are you native or not question when it comes to responsibility and storytelling. Who gets to tell what stories? It depends on the nation, and it depends on your community. And whether or not you're Indigenous is just one factor, and it's not even enough to say you're Indigenous. Like, just because I'm Inuk doesn't mean I have the right to tell another nation's stories. We're not all one nation. We have differences. And while people of one nation can invite someone from another nation to help them tell their story, being Native doesn't give you an all-access pass to all Native stories. And um, lived experience matters. Even though I'm born and raised here and still live here, I don't automatically have the right to tell all stories that have anything to do with Inuit. I have to do the groundwork of reaching out to the families who own stories or ensuring that I involve people who know best what we're talking about. That's work that you have to do for, for any story that you tell. And... You know, I've I've made those mistakes, especially earlier in my career. I mean, I find the Western society, there's an attitude of everyone has a right to their own opinion and, you know, f- freedom of speech, and we all have a right to say what we think. That's all true, and I agree with all that, but I with rights comes responsibility, and uh, in my community, it's incredibly important to think about your responsibility in storytelling whether or not you're the right person to tell a story, whether you're the most knowledgeable, uh, whether you really have something to add. Uh, is there someone else that's better to talk to about this? And, you know, I, I've I've done a lot of work with elders, interviewing elders about traditional knowledge. Uh, I've interviewed many elders across many communities. And, you know, they have, Inuit elders have, have uh, these strict principles of, you know, I'm going to recount the story I know as I lived it, as I experienced it. It's from my own experience, and I'm going to recount it as, faith, as faithfully as I can. And these are word for word, in of course, but word for word, things that I've heard directly from elders' mouths over and over again. And it's, it's a storytelling ethic to recount the things you've experienced yourself exactly as you can remember it, as faithfully as you can, and that if you're, you're telling a story that's um, secondhand that you didn't experience directly, they state that, that this is not my direct experience, but this is what I heard from this person. They cite their sources. And they'll often say, I have heard this story from um, more than one person. So it's corroborated. And so I know it to be true. There's just such a level of care with Passing on of information and stories, um, and when you grow up in those in, an environment like that, you you take that you take that ethic into your into your work. And so, for me, deciding to be in the inconvenient Indian documentary was a was a decision I made carefully. Deciding to help her gain access to people in my community who have the same storytelling ethic as as the elders that I uh, mention? that is a decision that's not taken lightly. And so for, for Michelle to have... I think I don't even have to explain why the, why I'm so embarrassed and hurt and how little care she put into presenting herself honestly and to tell stories that were not hers to tell.
3: Alethea, hearing you describe the ethics around whose who's stories you feel you have a right to tell and the way that that works in in, in your communities, it strikes me as like a, a form of, of journalistic principles. It's not that dissimilar from the way we try to account for our sources or whether you see something firsthand or not. But that's kind of where the similarity ends. Like the culture that I come from, and I think, I think the culture that Michelle Latimer comes from, the Western culture is one where we we claim quite righteously the right to express whatever we want, whatever opinion we want, to tell stories the way that we want, to explore our identities as if we're David Bowie, uh, every month uh, trying a new one on for size. And as you were talking, I just wondered how much of this is just about the freedom and the privilege to act with that kind of mercenary latitude Culturally, to move around like that versus a very different way of thinking about who one is and which stories a person gets to tell.
4: What I hope a silver lining out of this whole situation will be is that people who are entering into filmmaking or journalism or, you know, whatever form of storytelling people are entering into, that they, they consider the storytelling ethics of their home community.
3: And honor that you gave a couple of of very compelling reasons why this conversation might not have happened in our conversations with many different people who wanted to talk but did not want to go on the record there were a number of other reasons to not talk and just to run through some of these reasons fear of of, of libel legal repercussions from Michelle Latimer Mm -hmm. fear of her many allies who are either personal friends but in many cases Mm -hmm. it's a very small world and mm-hmm. in, in, in especially Indigenous filmmaking and television making in Canada. It she was, was involved in so many projects, and the people who are very forcefully defending her, some of them are powerful people, and a lot of the people we spoke to do not want to, to make enemies of them. Uh, similarly, there was a fear of um, being ostracized or blacklisted by uh, settler media by the CBC, mm-hmm. by various funds and grants that have invested in Michelle Adamer or, or, or might have something to gain if she can somehow salvage some sense of indigenous identity. A lo- One reason why people didn't want to talk about it is that people were fooled. People don't like to be fooled. Mm-hmm. It's embarrassing to be fooled. People feel like they welcomed Michelle uh, unquestioningly, and they feel embarrassed about that. Uh, and then there is a sense of precariousness With this particular moment that has been so hard won to tell indigenous stories by indigenous people in a way that they never have before. And that this incident is jeopardizing this rare opportunity, which I think has taken decades to come to this. It's such a, a a multiplication of negativities that, that this one individual's actions have, have brought upon uh, an industry, a, a many different peoples, a, a huge effort. Um, it's kind of staggering. It's kind of staggering.
4: Well, first of all, I just want to say that I had all, those, all of those fears that you just named. I didn't know who I was going to piss off. I'm one of many Indigenous people throwing their hat in the ring for for big projects at big broadcasters right now. And I know a lot of settlers will have seen what happened in the news and see, you know, Indigenous people who are upset and making critical comments and think, oh, they're angry, they might be difficult to work with, or they're being mean, they're being harsh, give her a chance to explain, give her a chance to figure things out. And I just need to make crystal clear how careful Many people approached Michelle before this news story broke, how carefully people approached her with how much love and care and generosity was given to give her the chance to do the right thing. I'm amazed how quickly she's found more information after the news story broke because she's had since June, from what I hear, um, noticed that this story was being worked on, that these questions were being raised. And, you know, if if it was possible to find more information that quickly, then why wasn't that done before the news story broke? I I, I feel the need to say, you know, in my defense and in other people's defense, we approached her privately behind closed doors, not in the news, without anger, with all the intentions of love and support to help her walk through the situation with dignity and to just be disappointed repeatedly. And as we started to speak to each other about, you know, these these private conversations with Michelle, comparing notes on what we're learning and not learning and, um, you know, that, that generosity and benefit of the doubt began to dwindle. So by the time the news story broke, some of us were quite angry with her and, and with the disregard she seemed to be approaching the whole situation with. How hard we were all working to support our communities with love and care to, to harm as few people as possible and to see her not taking that level of care, not doing the work to find answers, continuing to go on shoots and edit work rather than dropping everything and doing, doing the work.
3: What do you mean by doing the work? Like it, when, the, when rumors or a sense that her claims were not legitimate... And that she'd been telling different things to different people and that the community she claimed belonging to don't claim her, don't know her. When that came to your attention, you had communication with her.
4: Yeah, privately. And
3: invited her to, you privately said, this is a problem and and, and there's a way to deal with this. And you were ignored?
4: I, I said to her by email and by phone that, you know, I, I don't know her extremely well, but the, the few interactions I'd had with her... She seemed very kind and sweet and genuine. Um, and I was prepared to believe that if she turns out she's a settler and was wrong about her heritage, I'm prepared to believe that she was honestly mistaken, that perhaps someone lied to her or to her mother or grandfather along the way, and that she genuinely didn't know. But she needs to drop everything, do that work to, to find out the truth. And if, if it turns out she's not Indigenous or just has some loose connections to to Indigeneity, that she has to be brutally honest about that to herself and to the public. You know, not everybody owes that to the public, but the fact that she's taken on the biggest projects that Indigenous people have ever been allowed to do in this country gives the public the right to ask these questions of her. When you take up that kind of space in her making especially projects that represent Indigenous people broadly and not a specific nation, you have a responsibility to answer those questions. And we need to be able to ask these questions of each other without malice and to expect these questions and to be able to answer them confidently and to have done the work to be able to answer them confidently. And when I spoke to her, um, she didn't seem to have answers besides family lore. And she had done minimal work to start digging into the situation, but obviously there was more work she could have done and more information she could have found because she she did so after the news story broke.
3: We're talking about somebody who, as you say, was directing, you know, multi-million dollar per episode Series that was the biggest production, as you say, um, of Indigenous storytelling in Canadian television history. A person who was accepting awards on the basis of her Indigeneity, a person who was talking about her elders and posing for pictures, wearing traditional dress. It was pretty involved.
4: It was at a level that, um, that bears higher scrutiny, and it was happening after Boyden. I don't think I can express strongly enough what a disappointment it is that she did not do the work to find out what her heritage is. First of all, years ago, but especially after Boyden, especially especially after having been a very prominent insider in the film industry across Canada, but also within the Indigenous film industry, there is no excuse for her to not have done that work. I I don't understand, first of all, just as an Indigenous person, how you could desire so strongly to tell Indigenous stories and not have deeper curiosity about your own roots, just generally, but then also after Boyden and the huge, painful conversations that happened across this country at that time. You know, it just makes me more cynical about her intentions when when I had a chance to think that through.
3: When you bring up Joseph Boyden... You know, it's by way of illustrating after that, what's her excuse? It's not like this was um, surprising territory. But it also brings up another question, and not a question that I would pose to you. It's a question more for people like me. What's our excuse? There are millions of unambiguously indigenous people. I don't know how many pretendians there are. I mean, there are a number, but who took it this far, who made it their, their, their thing or their shtick. Uh, who built careers around telling these stories built on dubious claims of connection uh, and and committed to those narratives. That's like a needle in a haystack. But the Canadian media establishment has found these needles in the haystack. Like, what's our excuse? It's, it seems just so weird to me.
4: I don't think they are needles in a haystack. I don't think they are. They're everywhere. They're hundreds. They're in academia, they're in media, you name it.
3: Is it because both Boyden and Michelle Latimer sort of present as classically attractive, maybe by white standards? or Yeah. They, like, I, I'm trying to comprehend.
4: It's that, you know, there's, I'm so thankful to black and uh, indigenous creatives and academics um, across the world. I've learned so much from from so many different people. And one of the terms I've learned and had to reckon with myself is proximity to whiteness. When you're racialized, proximity to whiteness can help you because of the power structures rewarding whiteness. And sometimes it's literal whiteness, like light, light skin. And, and there are many indigenous people with light skin. I'm one of them, my father's white, my mother's Inuk. And so I benefit from being light skinned um, in many ways. And sometimes it's fluency in English. Sometimes it's having an accent that people are familiar with and comfortable with or an ability to code switch so that you can drop your native accent when necessary. Sometimes it's, it's mannerisms and um, etiquette. Um, so I think people who, who have that approximated whiteness are often promoted up the ranks. Another aspect which is incredibly important and, you know, I only managed to put my finger on recently is the trauma in our communities. But I think a lot of Indigenous creatives have, you know, when you come from a community where suicide rates are high, those aren't just stats. They're real people in our lives and we're gutted and brought to our knees when we lose people. And sometimes you just don't even have the energy explain that to the settlers that you're working with from far away and so it just comes across as being somebody who's not on top of their email or not keeping on top of um, their work and when you have relatives or friends who are struggling with family violence or with homelessness. um, I mean, there's just, there's so much going on in our communities. There's so much colonial induced trauma in our communities. And when you're embedded in your community, when you live there and deal with it on a daily basis, those things are not just sad statistics, they're your reality. And you have to sometimes drop everything and fill in gaps for um, family members or friends that are struggling for really good reasons, and so I think those of us who are who are really connected with our communities have all of these things to contend with and our non-native partners uh, or colleagues don't they just can't understand all of that and so when people like Michelle or Joseph Boyden come in and are, you know, either not native and saying they are, or really, really disconnected from their heritage and not embedded in their indigenous community. They, they can just, you know, and Michelle's known for working her ass off. She's a very hard worker. She's very talented too, but she doesn't have to contend with all of that trauma. She doesn't have to help hold up and heal the community that she's from. And so People like that, even actual Indigenous people who are disconnected from community, can sometimes go up the ranks more quickly because they can work their asses off and focus entirely on their careers.
3: Um, Stephen Lonsdale, who, um, Cecile Hunter, in, who is featured in Inconvenient Indian, uh, spoke with us.
2: Can you tell me, <laughs> Stephen, like in your community, what, is the, what does it mean to welcome uh, a filmmaker in to watch you hunt? What does it mean to go on camera and speak about your experience as you did in the Inconvenient Indian? Like what, what's, what's involved in that process?
0: For me, it's something very personal and also something very special, and I I don't do this lightly in any way just because of the way that our Culture has been portrayed in the media before, especially with animal rights activists and historically with, you know, organizations like Greenpeace with the seal pelt ban. You know, so I guess that's the biggest thing is that my thought was that there is an Aboriginal filmmaker who will tell my story the way that it should be told. And so there was a high level of trust. And so I had really let my guard down and, and so for the, the filming itself, it was just me going hunting. I, I just told them, you know, I'm, I'm going to go out. You, you do what you want, but I can't change my hunt. For the sake of you know of, um, of a camera angle or for for some narrative, I was just I told them I'm I'm gonna hunt and I might actually direct you sometimes where to film from because uh, I can't you know a hunt is a hunt it's extremely hard as it is and I, I I'm not quite you know I'm not quite up to par as some of my elders and so I I don't need the added challenges. Of a film crew. So as, as we went out, it was just a lot of me saying what I'm going to do and then, and then just doing it. And then I was pretty immersed in it. Sometimes I even forgot that there was a camera because it was just me out hunting. That's, that's all it was. It was, you know, not trying to portray me in a certain way. It was not meant to be some production, if you will. And I really didn't want anything staged in any way. So, you know, I just went out and, uh, and just did what I normally did.
2: And so given the, the history of misrepresentation or people, um, criticizing the hunt from an animal rights perspective, like this took a lot of trust from you to, to, to allow yourself to be, to be seen, to be recorded this way. Oh yeah. It, it, it took a lot. Yes. It did take a lot of trust. What would you say to people who would say, well, what does it matter? whether she's actually indigenous or not. What's the difference? You know, you know, if you agreed to be in the movie, maybe it's a good movie.
0: It's about being honest. It's about authenticity and it does matter because we've had a long history of others telling our story, telling about our ways, documenting it from their lens and so it does matter when it comes to who makes it because if it is from an aboriginal lens it does give it that authenticity it gives it that unique point of view and also it allows us to be able to document things in a way that is empowering in a way that educates educates ourselves so it's one of those things where if if an, if it's something you know from its roots authentically aboriginal it is it can be extremely empowering and especially for something like this that elevates kind of our way into the mainstream and really gives it a voice to say hey this this is who we are and we don't need to constantly defend ourselves it it has a sense of Power to it. And when you take that away, it's just another film by a non Aboriginal view. So it's, um, in this case, I guess, it, it becomes a matter of something that will elevate a story, or on the other hand, it's almost an exploitation of your resources and an exploitation of kind of uh, your position in, you know, in an industry. So um, it's a fine line and some people ask, yeah, what is the difference? Uh, the difference is, is of great value and, so, and it's a matter of principle.
2: The film isn't going to be seen. That, that, that is something that we know for a fact is, is the case. What's that been like for you?
0: My story was honest. One of the kind of thoughts I had was, well, how about taking all the the raw footage and recreating something, almost like taking back some of that, um, you know, you feel like something was taken away from you. So how about taking all back and telling your own story? And that's, you know, just a, a passing thought I had because everyone in the film had very valuable things to say.
3: You're in that film as well. What do you think should happen to The Inconvenient Indian?
4: I love that. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of brilliance in that film, a lot of incredible artwork, brilliant thinking. Because of the success of the book that film was based on, because of um, Michelle's track record as a filmmaker and Jesse Wente's track record as a producer and a thinker and a leader in our industry, there were a lot of really prominent People in that film, Um, and you could see their life's work. You know, there are brilliant moments in that film because their their life's work has been brilliant and brave and beautiful. So of course, I think it's going to be engaging no matter what. Michelle and her editor did did a really beautiful job of that film. I was really really impressed with it. I still think it's a beautiful film. It's tainted for me now. I really don't want to see it getting into prestigious festivals and getting awards, but I'm proud of the things I said in it. I am so proud of the seal hunting scenes in there. I was so proud of Stephen. As he's hunting, you can see his experience. You can see the care he takes for the animal, how quickly he moves after he shoots it to to ensure that it's um, dead and that it doesn't suffer any more than necessary. I was proud as an Inuk of those scenes. And I do wish it would be incredible to see that content repatriated or rematriated to um, the nations of the people. Um, wouldn't it be cool to see it recut or to have all the raw footage um, given back to the people who were in it uh, to do with what they want?
3: I, um, I forgot to mention one of the reasons why People said they didn't want to come and speak with us. And it bears uh, repeating. It's that they didn't trust us. There have been so many occasions where Indigenous people have tried to convey these ideas through settler media and found the message warped or misrepresented. Um, So there is a lack of trust that I understand. So before I say goodbye to you, I just uh, wanted to express my gratitude for for trusting us with this conversation.
4: Yeah, I've been burned by media. I've given my stories and my uh, perspectives on things and had settler journalists twist things into really dark, you know, trauma porn. Uh, I've been there, done that. So I don't automatically trust journalists, uh, especially when it comes to sensitive content. And, you know, I've spoken to you before, but honestly it it's it wasn't just trusting you. <laughs> I'm not gonna give you all that credit. <laughs> it's because I know you work with Ryan McMahon. And you've done Thunder Bay and done it beautifully and you're accountable to him. And your your relationship with him would be harmed if you mistreated my words. And so that's why I one of the reasons I felt safe to um to talk to you about this. There's accountability tied in through an indigenous person. You know, the we vet people for each other. We get to the the indigenous creative community is, is um pretty small and many of us know each other and we vet people for each other and um, that's partly why this whole situation has been so uh, heartbreaking is because you know this slip through this slip through the net. Um and when that trust is there and is broken, it's just, it it really is painful because we, we do work to try to protect each other and protect our communities from being misre- misrepresented and harmed. And there's a lot of thought and care that's put into that.
3: That's a really interesting uh, concept. Who am I accountable to? It's not about any kind of inherent <laughs> virtue. It's about who who do you answer to? Uh Uh, What are the relationships?
4: Sorry, Ryan, to put this all on you. I'm not putting it all on you, but I know that word will get back around to Jesse if he messes (laughs) up.
3: (laughs) Thank you again. Thank you.
4: Thank you for um, letting me take the conversation a little farther than it's been able to get so far.
3: That is your Canada Land. We absolutely depend on and require your support to make this show and all of our shows... To get our shows ad-free and support us, click on the link in the show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. It takes moments. It's in Canadian dollars. Just go do it. Email me at jesse at canadaland.com. I read them all. We're on Twitter at canadaland. Our website is canadaland.com. Why not sign up for our newsletter when you're there? You can make sure that you don't miss anything we do by subscribing to that. This episode is produced by Kasha Mihailovic and Jeremy Kessler. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. Our theme music is by So Called. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like this show, please support it.